Hello and welcome to this episode of the Bread and Goods podcast. Independent India was a country with great aspirations. On 15th August 1947, at the stroke of midnight, the country's first Prime Minister promised to end poverty, ignorance, disease, and inequality of opportunity. Despite this proclamation, India's economy was chained by restrictions on economic activity. The license permit Raj stifled India's industry by making all productive activity virtually impossible. For decades after independence, the economy moved at a snail's pace, what is sarcastically called the Hindu rate of growth. But as conditions got worse, reforms were building up in the background. Slowly, policymakers saw the light and freed India from the shackles of planning in 1991. Today, 30 years after, after India's reforms, it is Asia's second largest economy. How did this happen? To answer this question, I have Dr. Shri Rajgopalan with me. She runs the 1991 project at the Mercator Center, which aims to chronicle the events that led to India's moment of economic freedom. Hi, Shruti, and nice to have you here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is, well, India uh, decided to go on, decided to follow a socialist path, but it surely didn't come out of a vacuum. India's leaders didn't decide one day to do this. So what was the intellectual climate in which India moved to its planned economy? So, you know, there are three or four different factors. So the first is, uh, you know, at the turn of the century, the world was sort of moving against old school laissez-faire type economics. In fact, you know, John Maynard Keynes famously wrote the obituary of laissez-faire in an essay called The End of Laissez-Faire. You can see this cropping up across the world. You have, you know, fascism and Nazism uh, sort of taking over in Europe. Uh, You have a proper, you know, command and control Soviet model that is already in place, uh, you know, by the by the mid 1920s, uh, and even in the in the United States, you have this you know new kind of progressivism creeping in. Right, you start regulating large monopolies, and these restrictions have started coming in. And of course, the peak of that uh, is the New Deal. So this is sort of taking place the world over. So that is one factor that, you know, come 1947, India wasn't unique and the Indian intellectuals or the intellectuals who influenced Indian intellectuals were not unique in espousing some form of collectivism, you know, so that's one. Uh, The second is India uh, during the war, as you know, a couple of years after the end of the war is when India gained freedom. So during the war, there were enormous price quantity controls which were put in place to help the war effort, right? A lot of this starts since, say, 1939-40. By 1942, you have a proper system, like sort of, you know, a myriad price controls uh, that have come into the economy. So that continuity in one sense, you know, the, the, the bureaucrats are already accustomed to running a controlled economy in service of a war effort. Their side won the war. So you knew that this was not all for naught. And it's going towards something. And we know we can run this machinery successfully and we can win the war. The third is among the different styles of collectivism that were sort of, you know, in vogue around the world, India espoused the Fabian model. 
Uh, and I have an argument for why this is the case. In fact, you know, I've written on the origins of the Planning Commission in India. I can share that uh, chapter with you. And I have another paper, which is in a working paper form right now, uh, tracing the origins of Fabianism in India. And, and the short answer is that the Fabian socialists supported the Indian nationalist movement in a world where others did not. And this is not just about Lasky and George Bernard Shaw supporting Nehru. This goes back about 50 years before him, right? Dada by Nauroji is talking about, uh, you know, the extractive policies of the British and is, they, Dada by Nauroji initially doesn't ask for freedom. They just want the British to have better economic policies in India and treat Indians as British subjects, right? So that's sort of the ask. And uh, when he goes on lecture tours in England, the people who are most keen to listen to him are the Social Democrat Federation and the Fabian Socialists. So, you know, this is um, uh, sort of starting in the 1860s, going well into the 1880s, you see this movement taking place. So by the time you come to Krishna Menon and, you know, uh, Nehru, you're really talking the second, third generation of Indian students who've gone to the UK and who've met the Fabians and who are influenced by them. Uh, and, the, and the final thing I would say is it wasn't just the nationalists, all the um, Indian civil service aspiring candidates went to London to get an education and to take the civil service examination. So this was sort of like a new crop of Indian elite. A lot of them went to the London School of Economics, which was just more accessible than Oxford and Cambridge. It was also in London. Uh, so the Fabians had this stronghold as far as Indian students were concerned. You know, they had a tutor who was dedicated to Indian students and things like that. They had they were in talks with the Tatas to have a chair, uh, you know, on Indian studies. So this was a really tight connection. So it's not just Nehru, you know, but Nehru was also surrounded by civil servants who were trained in the Fabian school. His principal secretary, uh, Trilok Singh, also known as the architect of the first five-year plan was also Lasky's student, right? So these things are not so coincidental. So there are multiple factors. And now when one looks back, it almost feels like a foregone conclusion that, you know, India would have espoused some kind of socialism and it happened to be Fabian socialism. Okay. But the socialism India embraced in the 50s and 60s was a lot more, was a benign version of what, of, compared to what it had in the 70s with Mrs. Gandhi. What are the differences in the, in the first, uh, between the first two five-year plans and then later what happened with bank nationalization? So, you know, the first two five-year plans, actually socialism under Nehru, uh, the global consensus was it's a success. And the reason was that under the colonial powers, India was growing at about 1.2% 1, 1 uh, per year, the Indian GDP. And under Nehru, once, you know, there's this massive pub public spending on big infrastructure projects, right? There is a massive realignment of goals towards development. In the initial years, you suddenly saw the Indian economy flourish because you didn't have this kind of oppressive colonial taxation. You didn't have this kind of extractive economy. You know, a lot of the, the resources that were uh, sort of being diverted towards the war effort, you know, that, that part went away. So under Nehru, on average, India was growing at about 4%. So of course, there were good years and bad, but overall, the Nehruvian socialism times are not considered the worst, you know, economic times or, you know, in terms of economic growth. 
Now, a few things happened uh, with Mrs. Gandhi. So Nehru was very much of uh, the mixed economy view where he wanted gradualism, uh, you know, towards socialism in a whole uh, range of areas, but very specific means of production, which were scarce, like, you know, iron and steel, aviation, telecom, these kinds of areas. He very much wanted it to be uh, dictated by state control. And his primary motivation for that was one, that's what everyone else suggested. Uh, but the other primary motivation was that they just didn't think that the Indian private sector had the resources for the kind of scale required, you know, the financing required, the capital requirements of very large infrastructure projects. So that is how the split was originally planned, right? Now, where Nehru's downfall started taking place was one, the closed economy, right? That India was not able to engage in global trade effectively, even though, you know, the free trade restrictions were relatively benign in Nehru's time relative to, you know, in the, in the 70s and 80s. But that meant that you couldn't easily import things that manufacturers needed or agriculturists needed to be able to produce as well as one could within India to then be able to export it. Right, That entire mechanism of being able to attract inputs from the global markets and, and get the best, right, and therefore be able to uh, raise productivity levels and, you know, then export in certain areas where Indian goods and services are the best, that, that mindset didn't exist, and therefore that channel simply didn't exist, right? So over a period of time, what you get is stagnation, right? Under Nehru's leadership, India designed some really good projects that are some really good bicycles or cars that come into place. But within 15 years, you see this completely stagnate, right? The original bicycle plan, they borrowed from the best engineers. But without market competition, you have no innovation, right? So after 15 years, your bicycle just looks like this outdated you know, piece of machinery. It's not, it's not so useful anymore, right? 15 years is a long time. Um, to go without innovation. So this is sort of what was characteristic of Nehru's economy. The second was it was still an agricultural infrastructure, which was very uh, uh, reliant on weather, you know, and that that's still something that dictates Indian agricultural policy even today. And the third part of it was they were trying to conduct these massive land reforms simultaneously and land holding sizes that used to be very, very large, slowly started becoming smaller. Now, you don't see the worst effects during Nehru's time, but you see the, the beginning is, is in Nehru's time. By the time you get to the 70s, you've had two generations, you know, since 1940s when the land reform started, and now you see land holding sizes have become smaller. Productivity has reduced, right? There is too much reliance on weather, so your, your farmers are not so productive. Uh, you see a similar stagnation in industry. The first crisis comes with the devaluation crisis in 1966, right? This is a moment when India could have gone the South Korea way had it, you know, followed the entire mandate or the prescription that IMF and World Bank handed to India uh, to, you know, devalue the currency, embrace exports, embrace a more open economy and so on and so forth. But for various reasons, some of it is the personal relationship between Mrs. Gandhi and the Lyndon Johnson administration, you know, uh, America's uh, 
uh, sort of uh, reluctance in uh, helping India with the aid, like food aid in terms of wheat. So, you know, these PL480 wheat ships would be approved one at a time, leaving India under very high, uh, you know, food insecurity and stress. So there were a number of reasons why this sort of collaboration of American style Washington consensus policies didn't take place. Uh, simultaneously, Mrs. Gandhi was fighting a battle within her party. Right. And she was really fighting a faction head by Kamraj, known as the syndicate within the Congress, who wanted to control the government. And they thought that, you know, Mrs. Gandhi would be the sort of like figurehead. Uh, she wanted control for herself. And what she found was the faction or the Congress loyalists who supported her were mostly, uh, you know, left leaning socialist types. OK, so the Congress Party split and the liberal side of the Congress Party right, split away from Mrs. Gandhi. And Mrs. Gandhi engaged in this major power struggle. She actually won. She consolidated her power. She won the election and so on and so forth. In the process of consolidating her power, one of the things that happens is her, one of her advisors is P.N. Huxer, who is very, very, you know, straight out of Lasky's book kind of Fabian socialist, right? So he genuinely believes in controlling all the means of production and things like that. The second thing is they realize that if you can manage to control the banks, you can then forgive agricultural loans. You know, there's a number of things that, that you can do uh, as a government if you can control the credit system. So that's one reason to nationalize banks. The other reason to nationalize banks is uh, you can have a lot of off the books spending, right? Uh, you, can, you can run up very high deficits. You can hide these very high deficits in your you know, statutory liquidity ratio. And like, you know, you have so many tricks, right? If you can manage to have a central bank, which is not so independent, and, you know, basically the largest 15 or 20 banks, which are sort of at your disposal uh, as your means to control the rest of the credit and the monetary system. So that was the other impetus. The ostensible reason that was presented was inequality and low bank penetration in rural areas. And, you know, if the government takes over the banks, then then farmers will have better credit penetration and stuff like that. So there's it's it's all going on on both ends. But you're absolutely right in that. Uh, the turning point is bank nationalization. It's followed by a spate of nationalization of, you know, copper and coal mines and general insurance and, you know, textile mills where the, the, the factories have now become unproductive and the labor laws are so oppressive that these factories cannot close and these factories cannot fire anyone. So they're just kind of, you know, struggling. And then the government will swoop in and basically nationalize these factories so that all the laborers have a job, though it's very unproductive. Uh, so this sort of, you know, process begins. Another interesting thing that she does, uh, which is not necessarily socialist. I mean, this can also happen in another economy, uh, but it's certainly, you know, going against a constitutional bargain is abolishing all the privy purses of the princes. You know, there were about 560 princely states that joined the Union of India. And uh, these princely states were offered a purse in exchange for their commitment to give, you know, hand over their rights as sovereign and tax collectors and their land to the Union of India. And these purses were, you know, uh, done away with as, you know, it, it was done under the guise of we're abolishing the aristocracy and, you know, we're wasting money every year, money that can be spent on welfare and the poor. And, uh, but this was another really important policy. So it's sort of like, you know, one after the other from 1969 to say 1975, 
it's just like the the you know it's it's a roller coaster with no brakes fundamentally and you also see uh, foreign exchange uh, regulation you know your fera mrtp like you know the really oppressive uh, socialist machinery that comes in which is controlling foreign exchange is basically capital controls you know import tariffs uh, monopoly regulation all of these things start coming in mrs gandhi's time one really interesting thing you mentioned there was land reform now if you look at the the histories of south korea taiwan japan and to an extent even china land reform worked reasonably well that there were degrees in those countries but but it worked well in 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 all those economies why didn't it work well in india uh a number of reasons you know um well so to start with the indian system the idea that there is like you know a uniform system of this huge zamindar from whom land can be taken and it's very very clear who the landless peasants are and it's just a simple matter of you know taking from one and redistributing to 100 that was not so simple in india right you had zamindars who were actually quite small and then you also had zamindars like say you know uh, sir kameshwar singh you know was really like a maharaja right who effectively owns half the land in bihar uh when you are doing land reform for kameshwar singh not only is he sort of like a maharaja level you know aristocrat or zamindar he has about 200 zamindars under him and then there are you know patnidars or sub zamindars under him and then the 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 location of the landless peasant is very far removed from kameshwar singh right but the kinds of tools that were used to take land from a and give to b were very similar across the board no matter what the size and scale it's one part of it the second part of it is we didn't have very good land titling systems under zamindari we still don't have them right so in parts of india where uh, the british settled later which is you know the the south and the west and there's some good evidence for this uh and they adopted the ryotwari system right which is different from the zamindari system the british made bigger investments because they were themselves the tax collectors as opposed to the you know the diwani of bengal which had then been you know sort of broken up and handed over to zamindars because the east india company you know in the late 1700s early 1800s simply didn't have the state capacity to survey the land create titles and collect land revenue right so the later the british settled in any part of india uh, you know and the more far removed they were from the original zamindari system and the permanent settlement act the more likely that the british had a stronger presence made investments in state capacity actually had good titling systems and you know just better records and management so some of this is logistical if you know who are we taking from and whom are we giving to uh, some of it is institutional right uh, but the last part of it is let's say you do have successful land reforms right you actually there are some states where they manage to take from the rich and give to the poor uh, the trouble is you as a society did not want very large land holding sizes 
right? You wanted to redistribute. But within two generations of succession, especially in times between 1950 and 1980, when you, you have the death rate is slowly, you know, falling and life expectancy is increasing and birth rates are still quite high. Uh, within a couple of generations, you see massive fragmentation in land holding. And this is just pure and simple succession, right? So now India did a few things. Various states had limits on the largest size of agricultural holding because they wanted to prevent this kind of zamindari concentration of wealth. Simultaneously, they also have small holdings which are becoming smaller and smaller because of succession. Very soon, because of these unintended consequences, Indian states have to start imposing minimum land holding sizes, right? Uh, so you have very unproductive agriculture. Now, a normal person would immediately say, hey, if the land holding sizes become too small, there's a great opportunity for someone to come up and you know start assembling small land holdings into a larger land holding and conduct agriculture at a productive scale, but it's almost, you know, prohibitively expensive or impossible to buy and sell agricultural land, right? So these things are all, you know, going on simultaneously. And in the process, you have successful land reforms, but even in places where they are successful, you have unproductive, you know, agriculture. And places where you have unproductive agriculture, uh, there is much less impetus to have land reforms because that, you know, that movement has in some sense weakened, right? People now really would much rather have salaried jobs, union jobs, secure jobs. So then the demand is to nationalize the, the textile mills or nationalize the banks so that all these people's jobs can basically basically be converted into very secure lifelong tenure government jobs. So it's a little bit messy and complicated on even what success and failure looks like. That's a, that was a very detailed one, something with which I'd never considered. Next question to you is India compared to other developing countries has been fairly stable macroeconomically despite the various internal controls that were imposed. Um, if you compare India to Latin America, uh, India hasn't had inflation of more than 50% any year. It's the closest India's come to a debt crisis was 1991, which was resolved far better than any other developing country did. Why did this happen? You know, some of it is just chance, okay? But I'll tell you why I think the 91 moment in India succeeded better than many of the Latin American efforts. I think in many of the Latin American countries, it was a plain and simple transactional bailout, right? The IMF and the World Bank swoop in and they say, we will give you a loan and we will put off the current crisis as long as you do, you know, this list of 10 conditions or what is now known as the Washington Consensus. But there was very little buy-in on why the Washington Consensus is important, why it is valuable among two groups. One is the elites within the government, right? These are the people who need to execute the policy. And the second is the people. Because remember, a very large part of the Washington consensus is quite, quite 
is quite politically and economically painful, right? You're basically telling the governments to dramatically reduce all the wasteful government spending and redistribution and giving freebies to their constituents, which means it's harder for them to win elections. Their constituents are upset that all the freebies are suddenly gone, you know? Uh, so it's a painful transition. It's not, a, it's not an easy one. Now in India, things were slightly different for two reasons. The first, a lot of the people who were involved in the 1991 reforms in India, they were all homegrown intellectuals and technocrats who had spent some time abroad, either getting trained at university or, you know, in the case of people like Rakesh Mohan, Montek Singh Aluvalia, Jairam Ramesh, you know, they, they had actually worked at multilateral institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. This made a really big difference. So these are people who understand the, the domestic economy. They understand the political economy of change. You know, they, they know the local bureaucrats. They have a lot of buy-in. You know, Rakesh Mohan comes back to India and he's actually working, right, as an advisor uh, in the industry ministry, you know, and he's serving uh, the, the industry secretary, A.N. Verma. So you have, you know, Montek Singh Aluwalia who comes back and he's actually advising the prime minister. You have Manmohan Singh who returns to India and occupies virtually every important position that a technical economist could occupy within the bureaucracy and the government, right? Within the planning commission, within the Reserve Bank of India, the, the finance ministry, the office of the chief economic advisor. So all these people who had buy-in with the Washington consensus and agreed with the kinds of reforms that IMF wanted were also deeply entrenched within the Indian bureaucracy and were in a position to see this through. So, you know, it wasn't like IMF was forcing something down reluctant minds and, you know, you know ramming this down people's throats. So this is, I think, a very important element and an important distinction. I think the second reason it succeeded in India was, and, you know, this is also true for some Latin American countries, you know, they had a lot of influence of, say, economists from the University of Chicago and things like that in the 70s. Uh, but in India, you could clearly see that there was a group of homegrown intellectuals and technocrats who had started talking by the late 70s about how the socialist system is not serving India well. Right. Some of them were socialists themselves who could see, you know, with plain eyes that India's growth rate has plummeted, the poverty has increased, you know, fiscal deficits are through the roof, the macroeconomic situation is not good, and something needs to be done. Many others who were not trained in economics, but could very plainly see that, you know, controlling cement prices is <laughs> just, you know, spinning off this entire political economy of corruption. And it's such an important input into virtually every single um, aspect or, you know, the infrastructure of society that everything down the road gets stalled when you, when you screw with cement, right? Or, you know, you're trying to control uh, steel and things like that. So, even people who were not trained in economics, they could see that something is very off about the Indian economy. You know, the kind, this kind of shortage economy is not serving India well. So there were a lot of efforts, right? So this is, you know, the Satcher Committee report or the Abid Hussain, you know, a report on trade reform. Satcher Committee is, of course, on, uh, you know, MRTP. This is monopoly uh, restriction trade practices. So all these things start in the late 70s and go well into the 80s. So for a good 12 to 13 years before the 1991 reform movement, you have a lot of experts sort of deeply thinking through these ideas. And a lot of them are in line with 
what the IMF and the World Bank are suggesting, which is better macroeconomic health, more fiscal discipline, you know, a little more liberalization, removing all these, this crazy import licensing business, you know, having more rationalized tariffs. So a lot of this has already, you know, started creeping in. Um, And I think for India, uh, I don't know if this is geographical proximity or proximity of the people. I imagine Indians were in in a better position to interact with South Koreans and Japanese and Taiwanese and Singaporeans and things like that. And, you know, India actually had these junkets, right? So Indian bureaucrats would do stints abroad. Right. So people like A.N. Varma had actually seen, you know, uh, what was going on. N.K. Singh went to Bangkok and and just saw this massive transformation uh, in the Thai economy. So I think proximity to the revolution that was taking place in East Asia, the Korean miracle, the reforms that were taking place in China were also very, very important, uh, you know, for Indian technocrats because they had this firsthand experience. I'm not aware if the Latin American technocrats had a similar, you know, group of countries where they could visibly, visibly and viscerally experience, you know, what happens when you have uh, better macroeconomic growth. That's a, yeah, that that was a very detailed answer. My next question to you is: You talked about the pushback, but how did the how did the process work? How did India go from okay, maybe this doesn't work, to a finance minister giving a speech saying that nothing can stop an idea whose time has come? What were the steps in between there? Oh, just pure simple pandemonium and crisis, right? So the the beginnings of the crisis set in by 1988-89, you know, it's quite clear that India's macroeconomic situation is quite bad. And, you know, when you have this kind of crazy import licensing and import restrictions, uh, you are, so let me put it this way. Normally, when you have tariffs, right, you are typically only imposing taxes on a foreign producer and you're benefiting the domestic producer, right? But when you have this kind of import licensing system, in addition to high tariffs, right? And import licensing simply means that every producer in India to be able to import something literally needed a license or a permit from the Ministry of Commerce. And, you know, then they needed the foreign exchange. (laughs) Then they needed permission from the RBI. Then they needed to go to the Ministry of External Affairs to actually get these shipments through. So you needed to, you know, liaison with like five, seven different ministries. You needed to make like 20 trips to Delhi. Uh, All that is a tax on the domestic producer. Right. So normally when you just have high tariffs, you know, like you have in the developed world for, say, agriculture, you're only taxing producers abroad and domestic consumers, but you're benefiting domestic producers. But when you have import licensing and in general, a very oppressive license permit charge, you're also taxing domestic producers. So your domestic producers cannot produce at high levels of productivity right? You're not allowing resources to go to their highest valued use. They're not competitive when it comes to exports, which means your exports are going to suffer, right? Because whatever your domestic producers are producing is not so good and no one wants it abroad. Now, this means you're not going to be able to earn foreign exchange very easily, right? And there are certain things for which India absolutely needed foreign exchange. The top of that list in the 70s and 80s was oil because India is not an oil producing country. It needed to import crude oil. So finally, all this comes to the fore because of crude oil imports, 
right? It just so happens that, you know, in the late 1980s, that's the moment. So India is not in a position to earn foreign exchange quite easily. And so how do we pay, you know, for all the commitments, for all the things we wish to import? Things were going well and sort of manageable. Uh, India was having, you know, it, it did some really strange things. Basically, a lot of revolving short-term external debt. You know, you keep borrowing money to serve the previous uh, loan or to, you know, pay the interest on the previous loan and things like that. Uh, now, of course, countries can do that a lot better than individuals and a lot longer than individuals. Uh, so this sort of went on for a few years. But when the Gulf War hit, you were suddenly in a position where, you know, oil prices just skyrocketed. They were like three to four times what oil prices were in previous years, which means the import bill, uh, you know, suddenly just went out of control. And India reached a situation where it only had foreign exchange reserves for, say, a couple of months worth of imports, right? As the world is watching this, India is also having this deep political crisis, right? Like there's, you know, one after the other, there are these very fragile minority coalition governments that are coming up. So there's also, you know, lack of leadership. Uh, VP Singh in uh, his government in 1989 uh, throws away all his political capital to bring in OBC reservations. You know, this is sort of like the Mandal Commission moment and everything that follows. It's a very important reform that takes place in India. But remember, political capital is also a scarce thing, right? You can use it on one thing or another. So he spent all of it on the Mandal, you know, uh, sort of goal as opposed to dealing with the macroeconomic crisis. So that was the VP Singh story. And he also, you know, his government fell within 11 months. I don't think they even completed a year. He's succeeded by Chandrasekhar, who's actually quite a reform-minded man, right? And he has an excellent finance minister in Yashwan Singh. Uh, Yashwan Singh recently, you know, in an interview said that his uh, budget speech was almost identical to Manmohan Singh because the blueprint for the reforms, which was made by, you know, Montek Singh Alwalia, A.N. Verma, Rakesh Mohan, all these people, the blueprint was already there. It was the same advisors, same civil servants who were advising the government. But what happened was there was this ridiculous sort of scandal that took place. The Rajiv Gandhi was supporting the government from outside. And uh, someone was, uh, had, you know, conducted surveillance and they were snooping uh, outside Rajiv Gandhi's residence, right? And uh, the rumor was that the people who had ordered the surveillance was the Haryana chief minister, who happened to be the same party as, you know, Chandrasekhar and Chandrasekhar as the head of that party had apparently ordered this kind of surveillance. So Rajiv Gandhi withdrew support from the minority government and the government collapsed, you know, I mean, the government barely lasted a couple of months. Uh, and then they just had to continue and general elections were announced. So this is kind of what is going on. Now, all the people who are reform minded are sharpening the knives in this moment because everyone expects Rajiv Gandhi to come back with a big majority. Rajiv Gandhi gets assassinated. Right. And it is in this moment that Congress wins the largest number of seats, but is not enough to make its own government, stitches together a fragile coalition, a third minority government after two, but this time led by PV Narsimha Rao. And uh, now the question is, what are we doing? Right. So Yashwan Sinha had put in a few things in place. Right. So he wanted to devalue, but he couldn't. So what he did was he approved 
selling India's gold, like India's confiscated gold, to raise about $250 million as an emergency stash because they couldn't make payments for oil otherwise. So just to pay the bills for imports, now India had reached a situation where you're literally selling the country's gold, right? And India's credit rating was so bad that even though it was a sovereign country and it was part of, you know, signatory and member of the IMF, uh, countries actually demanded that the gold physically leaves India. That was how low India was in credit worthiness and trust. Now, this is quite dire, right? And when Shankar Iyer broke the news of Indian gold actually leaving in secret planes to Switzerland and, you know, Bank of England and things like that, the Indian public, it's a huge embarrassment. And you know, the Indian public may not understand fiscal deficits, revenue deficits, foreign exchange reserves, but everybody understands that you are so bankrupt and so much in debt and so unable to make your commitments that you need to sell gold. If there's one thing India's poor man understands, it is that, right? Uh, so it was like sort of like this visceral thing. Uh, now, this is not to say there was public uh, uh, support for the reforms. The public was just largely unaware, but it became very clear when, you know, Narsimha Rao made his uh, speeches, he kind of, you know, gave a spin to Nehruvian self-sufficiency and self-reliance. He said self-sufficiency is ability to pay for imports. If you cannot buy oil to run your stove, you know, that is not self-sufficiency. So we need to do something to become more self-sufficient. So this was sort of, you know, his big pitch to the public and his pitch to the opposition. In fact, a lot of the loyalists, even within the Congress party were socialists. They were not in favor of the reforms. And that's the way Narsimha Rao, you know, pushed it. And he said, we're in favor of trade, not aid. So the, the 91 moment happens just, you know, I mean, these were the people who happened to be in the, in the seat of power, which was a revolving thing anyway, uh, at the moment when the reforms happened. But it was long coming and the blueprint was ready. It was just a question of who has the political clout to stitch this together. And the Narsimha Rao government almost fell two weeks after they devalued the currency. Nobody wanted the devaluation. They alienated everybody. But, you know, the left uh, front actually supported the government. So, you know, the left was completely, this is a great lesson in public choice, by the way, this is a strategic walkout. So, you know, the left wanted, uh, did not want reforms, right? Because that's against their socialist ideology. But at the same time, it was the BJP and the Jansung, you know, the old timers who were the right-wing nationalist party who were also involved in, you know, the, the Rath Yatra and a lot of the communal movement that was beginning and the left didn't want to support them either so when the bjp tried to bring down the narsimha rao government the left staged a huge walkout along with a couple of other parties which means the the <laughs> uh, number of votes required to hold on to power just dropped and they just squeaked through the no confidence motion within parliament uh, which was quite extraordinary uh, so these were sort of like the crazy events that took place. My colleagues, uh, Shreyas Narla and Prakhar Mishra, have an excellent essay actually giving the blow-by-blow -blow account of, mm -hmm. of you know, how all of this happened. Uh, but a lot of this is just dumb luck and global affairs, you know, if you're asking about the circumstances that led to the 91 moment. Do you think that coalition governments are better than majority governments at producing these sort of reforms because they are forced to consult with a variety of stakeholders as compared to majority governments, especially if you have a sort of concentration of power within the executive 
uh, where the government is not required, is not constrained to um, consult a variety of views? I think it's not that coalition governments are better as much as coalition governments end up resulting in a leader who is the sort of diplomat and consensus builder who is forced to take everyone along, right? So you cannot have a coalition government with a leader like, say, Mrs. Gandhi or Narendra Modi. They simply wouldn't get elected because the government would fall very, very quickly, right? Everyone would remove support. So either Mrs. Gandhi and Narendra Modi become the kind of leaders who can take everyone along, in which case reforms become more likely, right? Or their governments fall and someone else like say a Vajpayee or a PV Narasimha Rao, right? Or a Moraji Desai who are just more natural consensus builders or have proven to be more natural consensus builders end up filling the seat, right? So even if you notice when Rajiv Gandhi is assassinated, P.V. Narasimha Rao comes out of semi-political retirement, right? He's not even fought the 1991 elections at that point. Like, but he is an elderly statesman and everyone knows that he is good at stitching together coalitions and he's good at taking people along forward. In fact, when Vajpayee, Vajpayee is technically opposition, but when Vajpayee's government is, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to make some deals abroad, uh, the number one person he consults with always is is P.V. Narsimarao because he was also the external affairs minister for a long time and, you know, like, like one of India's best ambassadors and diplomats. So these people were just better at reaching across the aisle. So either that's the reason they led the coalition governments, which made reforms more likely, or that's the reason, you know, coalition governments were not led by some very centralized, you know, uh, big authority figures like uh, Modi and Gandhi. Um, do you believe in the great man theory of uh, history, given you've seen a major uh, change in a country's historical condition? No, I don't. Uh, which is not to say that I think individuals don't matter. I think, you know, certain individuals certainly matter a lot and they need to be at the right place at the right time. But I very strongly believe in, you know, the, the, the quote that you just gave, this is, you know, paraphrasing Victor Hugo uh, that, that Manmohan Singh uh, talks about in his budget speech, which is no power on earth can, can stop an idea whose time has come, right? So uh, I think finally it boils down to the scaffolding of ideas and the ecosystem of ideas within which even a great man must, must be born to rule or lead. Uh, so I actually am, I, I think there are too many historical accidents. <laughs> and I think that uh, ideas matter in, in the very, if you have if you have some kind of theory of long run institutional persistence and institutional change, and especially in the very long run, it is difficult to then embrace the great man theory, which also tends to be more short run bursts in history. Uh, so I would actually, you know, say uh, everything I have learned so far about the reforms and, you know, Indian independence movement, the planning commission, everything that follows is uh, finally how sticky ideas are and how important ecosystems are to nurture ideas with a particular group of people. When you generalize across countries, ideologies, and systems, is there a pattern that comes of how 
a country's dominant ideology changes? Um, I, I think it's very hard to find a pattern, right? Uh, you know, this is a little bit like, you know, this is also about how you view the world, right? With the appropriate level of abstraction, you can find a pattern in almost everything and almost everything looks similar and uniform with the appropriate uh, level of zooming in and detail and removing all the abstraction, almost everything looks different. Every grain of rice looks different, right? So, that, so some of it is simply a matter of perspective, right? So how, how is it that one is looking at the world, uh, whether you know, we see uniformity or not? Uh, I do think the pattern that typically tends to emerge is that there are tipping points. Right. So always when there is a change, something is brewing for a long period of time and then it tips. Right. Now, how that tipping point actually occurs, maybe in a retrospect, we can find patterns that make sense, but it's very hard for anyone to predict. Right. This is also like Timur Koran has talked about this, right? How difficult it is to predict the timing uh, of a revolution or if and when it'll happen. Right. Uh, but when you're looking back at revolutions, they seem almost inevitable because everything leading up to that point seems like, oh, yeah, of course. And then the revolution happened. So I think it, it depends on whether uh, we're looking backwards and or we're looking forwards and whether we are looking to make a sense of why the tipping point took place at that time, right? So if you really want to make sense of the tipping point, it has to be highly contextual. There is no pattern. It cannot be generalized, right? Uh, on the other hand, if you're trying to make sense of why do similar things happen across the world at, at similar moments in time, right? Why, is the, why are there 10 different people working on the light bulb? Right. For instance, at the same time, who are not talking to each other, or there are ten different people, you know, working on a vaccine at the same time, not talking to each other. Then I think you need to abstract away and find some broader networks and some broader culture or some broader technology which is making it possible. Uh, so I, I really think, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, this is not a cop out answer, but it's I, I think it's very difficult to generalize, and I think it is highly contextual, but that things tip over at some point is probably the point of commonality. I've listened to a lot of interviews you've given and um, what is what are the details of your personal economic ideology? Are you, are you a strict libertarian? Do you believe in, uh, I mean, the more contentious questions come is, um, would you call yourself a libertarian? So, you know, I think uh, there are two aspects. One is uh, the kinds, one is economic ideology and the other is economic methodology, right? So when I'm thinking like an economist, it's usually not on ideological terms, right? It's not, uh, uh, I'm not trying to find the fewest steps to the market solution. That's really not what one is trying to do. It's, I'm trained in a particular methodological discipline or a tradition Right. I come from uh, I was trained at George Mason University, which is also where I work right now at the Mercator Center. Uh, but it has a very, very strong tradition in Austrian economics, uh, in public choice economics and the history of thought. These were sort of the the foundations on which I was trained. Uh, so the way I look at the world typically is, uh, you know, I take lack of knowledge or the knowledge problem 
very seriously and i take incentive problems very seriously you know especially when it comes to political actors so that is typically the lens with which i view the world now sometimes this is very libertarian compatible because those of us who study public choice right or those of us who are trained in austrian economics we are typically critiquing a state institution for lacking the relevant knowledge or for lacking the relevant incentives right so it tends to be quite libertarian compatible on on certain margins uh but am i looking to be you know am i looking to find libertarian solutions to everyday problems no that's not what i'm trying to do at all it is usually the most incentive compatible you know uh way by which people can cooperate and coexist right which has the least amount of coercion because coercion is you know i think as a value uh, one would want to live in a world with as, as little coercion and as much liberty as possible uh, but second also coercion is costly right it's very costly use of resources so if you can do something the incentive aligned way as opposed to the coercive way right you're automatically you know saving a lot of social resources uh, to ensure that that happens right so i can either foster high quality by constant monitoring and like you know inspection systems and things like that or i can foster high quality through market competition and complete decentralized invisible hand mechanism where an additional set of resources are not going towards you know monitoring for high quality right so how can we find systems where you have low levels of coercion which are incentive aligned in such a way that cooperation leads to the best results right uh so this is in in one sense it's really an old adam smith project it's not a libertarian project or you know a progressive project or socialist project uh and what i mean by the adam smith project simply is finding institutions that align self interest with social interest right those are the sorts of institutions that adam smith identified and talked about and propagated in a very meaningful way so i think this is sort of a continuation of you know that project in one sense intellectually okay that was the, it was great fun talking to you uh, thank you for being on the podcast and i hope on independence day when this comes out our our listeners can have a great time listening about the indian the, the farms Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure, and uh, I'm very excited that that you know uh, you're budding into such a fine young uh, economic mind. Thank you.